Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 89. Last week we saw where Jesus gave three different parables showcasing what God and the heavenly beings do in terms of rejoicing over the concept of repentance. We had the parable of the lost sheep the parable of the woman with the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, And we spent a lot of time on that last one, dissecting it because it's so common among the Western church and how we may interpret it a little bit differently than what Jesus was intending to. Uh, Really, really radical things that at least I hadn't thought about before that the younger son was was being genuine in his response to go back home to his father, that that repentance was for real. It wasn't based on anything, some ulterior motive to go back to his old comfortable lifestyle and that we should treat it as such when we listen to it. Uh, it was very powerful to showcase it's not as if God is forgetting the ones that are pursuing righteousness. It's just thinking about how far someone has come with being lost and surrounded by darkness when they actually start to put the pieces together and change their life. God is on their side and for them in that. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And uh, yeah, I mean, we said it in the last episode. It doesn't actually make sense unless you accept that the repentance is real, sincere. That's how the parables work together. It's so good. So yeah, big, big deal. God rejoices, and we need to learn to be more like that. We're we're pretty quick to, you know, remember people's pasts and all this kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's good. Mm-hmm. It's good. Well, let's see what we've got here. Uh, we should pick up, well, you know what? We're picking up right where we left off. We're still in Luke. We're looking at chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, and you know what? Jesus has another little parable. This one, though, I don't know. A lot of people read this one, and they think it doesn't make any sense at all. So <laughs> let's see if we can help. I don't know if we can or not, but we're going to try. Here we go. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Clear as mud, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's all great until you get down to the end, and it's like, what? What's going on? So, okay, let's see what we got going on here. First of all, notice that he is speaking to his disciples, but we're going to see 
that the Pharisees are, are there, they're listening, whatever. It's important, just note that. But anyway, you got this guy who manages another rich guy's property, manages, you know, the property, the wealth, whatever, all of it. And this manager, he seems to be enjoying his master's wealth a little too much. He's wasting it. Another way of saying it is that he is squandering it. So you got to get that picture in your head. This guy is in charge of all this stuff, and he's wasting it, spending it, squandering it, and maybe even on himself. So in a way, it's it's the same word as the prodigal son. When the prodigal son went away and he squandered everything that his father had given him, that's what this guy did. Mm-hmm. So that should also help you get get the picture. Except it's weird because this manager, I don't know, it's like he's doing it right under his master's nose. It's very strange. But anyway, the rich guy doesn't like it, and he plans to dismiss him. But let's just make a, another simple observation. Note that they're both interested in money and wealth. Seems like not a big deal. Probably a, a easy, reasonable, fair statement to make. Now, the manager, uh, he says it. He doesn't want to do any physical labor, and he doesn't want to have to go beg, but he's got this problem because nobody's going to want to hire him as a manager either. You were a manager for this guy. You messed up and he fired you. Why would I hire you? So he develops this plan. And now this is where this is... Uh, You know how the text, Samuel, we've talked about this a lot. It has a lot of detail, and then at the same time, it's like there's a lot of room to try to figure things out, what's going on. Well, I'm going to kind of take advantage of that right now. I'm saying he's developing this plan and, and that he's trying to accomplish a couple of things, and you'll see why I'm saying this. Number one, I'm suggesting that he actually kind of wants to bring in an influx of, I don't know, cash or products, you know, like oil or grain or whatever it was, right? He wants to bring some stuff in for his master because things are looking kind of slim all around because he's been squandering everything, right? And, you know, he's hoping that this will somehow help his reputation. I mean, who knows? He might even be hoping it helps him keep his job, but whatever. But the second thing he's trying to accomplish, and this one's uh, obvious and easy from the text, he wants to make other people look kindly on him. And his, his thinking is that, well, they might repay the favor. If he reduces their debt, then later they might take him into their home, even if it's just temporary. So, so that's kind of the setup of what's going on. And again, the text isn't explicit about this, but, and, and I'm going to explain this some more, it, it seems to me that the manager... He's going to his master's debtors not only to reduce their debt, but I'm suggesting that while doing it, he's also collecting. I'll show you what I mean. I, and, and just for, for, like for the story's sake, it's more like if you pay now, if you pay your bill now, if you clear your debt now... I'm going to let you pay 50 instead of 100, and then you'll be clear of your debt. Or like with the other guy, if you pay now, you could, don't, you could pay for only 80 instead of the 100 or, or whatever. Now, again, I know that the text isn't explicit. It doesn't actually say this about the whole paying now part. But I, I think that it fits better with the story and the master's response. And here's why. If all the manager did was change a bunch of numbers, I don't know, like in a book or on pieces of paper, if that's all he did, I I don't see how the the master comes in and thinks this guy is super cool and awesome and shrewd. It seems more likely to me that the master just would have been more angry. You squandered all my stuff, and then you just went and gave a bunch of stuff away. So what I'm suggesting, if the master suddenly does have kind of this this 
influx of of you know cash or products or you know whatever the first century image is after all of this squandering and we might even think after the failure of collecting on these debts or even the failure of allowing there to be debts i don't know however this worked well in that case the master might have been a little more impressed he might have even found his manager to be quite shrewd, right? Oh, look at the Where did all of this stuff come from, right? The manager turned it around really quickly. Might even have commended him, you know, right, <laughs> right before he fired him. Now, again, it, or it could just be that the guy wrote numbers on the books or, you know, on paper or whatever, and, and that really is the whole story. Who knows? But for me, I'm just trying to figure out how could this manager be impressed with that? It just, I don't know. I needed more for me. But here, here's the thing. He ends up with, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So here's the kicker. That's Jesus kind of commenting on this little parable. So Jesus also seems to find this manager's actions shrewd, at least within the context of this, you know, fallen human world. This manager has found a way to use the riches of this world to earn merit or favor with others. And actually, more precisely, he used someone else's wealth to do it. He had made friends with that wealth so that he might be cared for as long as he lives. But you're still kind of left with, well, why does Jesus think that this is impressive or a good example? Why does he think that there's something worth imitating in this manager? And so I think the next section is going to help us see that. But before we go there, Samuel, thoughts, comments, questions? I don't know. What? Yeah, I was just going to say if if the parable were to end here, I don't know if I would come away with a point like what was the purpose behind why Jesus brought it to the listeners in the first place. Uh, It it just seems way off in left field. So I'm hopeful that this next section can clear that up for us. Oh, I'm feeling good about it. (laughs) Hang on to your seat. Here we go. Uh, Let's keep going. This is Luke. It's uh, chapter 16 now, verses 9 through 13. says this, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, didn't that just clear it all up, Samuel? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. And hopefully, that's why we're here. So here we go. He starts out, make friends for yourselves. Okay, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Okay, what is he talking about here? So Jesus is instructing us. And hopefully I can use better terms. He's instructing us to use the wealth of this world to make friends just like this shrewd manager did. Except these friends that we're trying to make, they are not of this world. They are heavenly. So the point is that we should use our wealth, our resources in this world 
to care for the poor of this world. And and by that, it's everything that we've talked about over and over and over in this podcast, the justice, the mercy, the charity, etc. And so in doing that, what we do is store up treasure in heaven. So you could say, in a way, we are making heavenly friends. Now, the friends could be, you know, the stored up treasure that we get from doing the good deeds, or you could say that a heavenly friend is God himself, because we are, you know, walking in obedience and and being in his image on the earth, that kind of thing. But these heavenly friends, they will care for us as long as we live, except that that's not here, that's eternally. So it's kind of a Kind of a neat image. I, I'm going to stop there real quick, Sam. Did that help at all? Are we are we bringing a little bit of light to the world here? I think so. It is it, it, kind of giving off some more of that. How much more so the Colvacomer, the comparison yeah. between the light to the heavy going on yeah. here. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And in fact, it's going to get real explicit because here it says, uh, he gets down, oh, he starts talking about uh, if you're faithful in very little... You'll be faithful in much. If you're dishonest in very little, you'll be dishonest in much. So the wealth of this world is little when compared to the wealth of the kingdom and the world to come, or, you know, God, or or however you want to look at that. And so that is much. And if you are not faithful with the wealth of this world, meaning you're not using it in a manner that is, you know, in line with the instructions of Torah, then you're not going to be faithful with true wealth, the wealth of the kingdom, the world to come, God. If you're not using your wealth and resources properly, then you're, you're being dishonest, first with yourself, and then second with God. And here's... Uh, just to, to kind of paint a picture, this idea of being faithful in a small thing and then getting a bigger thing or whatever, think about Moses and David. Both of them have something that's very similar in common. They first took care of flocks of animals. Moses did that once he left Egypt and before he went back, you know, on a mission. David did it as a young man before he became king, all that. And only then... Uh, later, after they had done that, were they then like leading flocks of people? So they were faithful in the little, and then they proved faithful in much. So anyway, there's just a little mental image for you. Here's the scary part. If you are not acting faithfully while here in this world, in this age, well, who is going to let you in on the true riches of the age to come? That's the question that Jesus is asking here. And of course, the the inferred answer is that God most definitely will not. And so, how many times have we seen this, Samuel, where, you know, whether it's talking about, you know, how you take uh, treat money and resources or the idea of mercy or forgiveness or whatever— How many times have we seen this where Jesus tells this story where, hey, if you're not living up to the dream, you know what? You're going to miss out. You're not going to be included. It's it's not that, that sweet, simple story that we love to hear in the church in America. This is this is a big deal. It's kind of scary. So anyway, he goes on. Uh, I I don't know, I guess we could say he adds a little salt to the wound. But Jesus also points out that all of the wealth and the resources that we've been talking about, they're not even ours. I mean, we're not using those resources properly, and we think of them as ours, but they're not. Everything belongs to God. And so that's yet another clear connection between, you know, us in, in the big story, our story, and this squandering manager. We're playing with being fired. We're using our master's wealth. We're squandering it. Or maybe that's the question we should be asking ourselves. Are we squandering our master's wealth? We should be using our master's wealth to ease others. 
debts or burdens or sufferings or whatever. And we should also be, I think, part of the goal is to help others settle their accounts with our master. Did you pick up on that one? Hmm. Right? He wanted them to, hey, you know, uh, you can get in for half of the oil or you know, 80% of the grain or, you know, whatever. We're we're trying to help people settle accounts with our master. Of course, it doesn't look like oil and grain or, what, or whatnot, but settling accounts. It's, it's a cool image. Our master, God, would also find that to be shrewd and commendable. If we could, you know, in some way get people you know, in line with God, settling accounts with God. That's a, it's a good thing. And, and the goal, of course, that we would receive our true riches in the world to come. And so Jesus, he kind of summarizes by identifying two competing masters. And now in the, in the, the story, the parable, there was just one master, but this is going to help us see and understand what's really going on. The wealth and riches of this world, and you could just say money or stuff or whatever, and the wealth and riches of God, and and that would be, you know, like the end of our story. We get to dwell eternally with him. Jesus's point is that we should use one of those masters to serve the other, because you can't serve both. If you're living in this world, if you're chasing all the things of this world or or whatever, money, stuff, riches, that's the master of this world. God is the other master. You can't serve both. They're incompatible. And now, and I guess we should say this out loud, importantly, nothing in this is saying that the wealth and the riches of this world are inherently bad. Lots of God's you know, favorite people in the Bible, some of our Bible heroes, they were very, very wealthy. So it's not inherently bad. It's all about our relationship to our wealth, our riches, our resources, whatever you want to call it. And what's the old saying? Do we rule over them or do they rule over us? And and it's kind of funny, Luke's statement here, if when I read it, you were thinking, wow, it's kind of a deja vu moment. It is virtually identical to Matthew 6, 24. Uh, and we discussed that earlier. It was I had to write this down. It's in the Gospels, number 40. And the conversation there was a little bit different, but the, the basic meaning is pretty consistent. And side note, just in case you didn't pick up on this, we all have two masters. God's will is one master, and our own will is the other master. And that, I think, when when you look at it that way, that brings that last little sentence really into clear view, because that's the story of the whole Bible. We need Mm -hmm. to elevate our will, his will above our own, and so there you go. We got two masters, and we've got to love the one and not serve the other. Just uh, another thing, just throw this in here real quick. Daniel Ladcaster Now, you've heard me talk about him before. He offers a great summary of this parable. He says it this way. If the wicked and unjust steward has enough sense to use wealth to buy himself friends for the future, how much more so should the righteous have sense to use their wealth to buy themselves friends for the world to come? And again, those friends, you know, would be like treasure in heaven or God himself or however you want to see that. Anyway, side note, this whole, uh, because we were talking about a manager and he had a book with debts and all that, just, I don't know if anybody ever thought of it at all. The idea of a book of debts is a is a really good allusion to the book of deeds from the Rosh Hashanah festival imagery and judgment and that kind of stuff. So, not going to say any more about that other than, hey, you know, plant a little seed. That might be an interesting thing to look at, study, read about, whatever. Yeah, now that we're at the end of this, I I feel like the I'm seeing the forest through the trees a little bit more than I did beforehand. And there Good. were some things that you said there at the end that really struck home for me. Um, one of those is 
clarifying that we have two masters, God's will and our own will, and that made me think of the rhetorical question. I mean, and there's scripture to back it up that, uh, like, which one of those are you going to crucify? Like, which one of those are you going to try to kill in your life? Like when when Paul the apostle, in I think it's, I think it's Galatians two twenty where he says like I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. I think he's getting at that two wills aspect that, like because of this new identity that I have, one of my new purposes is to put to death that master that has ruled over me up until yeah. the time that. I have started to partner with God yeah. um, in in a life of pursuing His goodness and righteousness. So I, I think that that really shows itself in this parable, and then we probably can look back at so many other examples in the, the Gospels <laughs> that we've seen already, and then probably before we get to the end, it's going to come up again. Oh, um, I would bet. And another thing, I actually have two more things. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the question that you asked: Do we rule over them, or do they rule over us? Man, if this doesn't go back to Genesis and the creation story, uh, I don't like it. It uh. all is founded on on Genesis and what sets sets us apart from the animals. Like, wh- what is going to master over us? Is it going to be our are like in Greek, it's called the sarks, uh, your animal appetites, your your impulses, your urges, whatever you desire and you feel like doing, you act on that almost instantly because it's it's just what you do that makes you feel good in that moment. Or like, are you using the way that God created you in His image to be able to like know when to say enough to say no to those desires because ultimately some of those can be destructive. And like we can see it and ex- like the example of the manager doing that all the way back in Luke 16:1 like when it says that this man was wasting his possessions like yeah. th- those possessions were mastering over him. And it just made me think this past weekend I was on a hike with a guy like he's a He's a pretty open Christian, like super awesome dude. And um, one of the things he had mentioned that he like had recently taken a fast from drinking alcohol. And he's like, it's not because I think alcohol is inherently sinful or bad. He just like, I don't want anything in my life to like he said this like explicitly. I don't want anything in my life other than God to master over me. Like whenever yeah. I come home from a hard day at work and I like I just feel like I, I wanna have a couple of beers or whatever, like I feel like that's the the mastering aspect creeping in a little bit and, and I wanna fight against that. And I just thought that was so powerful to hear that from someone in their own perspective and it, it just you know, it just shows how relevant the gospels are, uh, in yeah. whatever situation is going on in your life. Yeah, that's good. Um my last thing, it's kind of a question, how how do listeners of this parable now and even back then not come away from this thinking that they can somehow, quote-unquote, pay their way into those heavenly friends by their good deeds? Like, how can this be treated organically uh, in terms of a natural symbiotic relationship between God and man, and it's not like... Well, it's formulaic. Like, if I do more good deeds, that's going to give me more of a chance to be on the heavenly side of the scales whenever I die. Like, um, do you know? Do you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, I do. And uh, that, that it, it's a, I mean, it's a great question. It's always difficult to answer because this is it's one of those points of great confusion. On one hand. We know that our deeds are not actually effective. Like, they don't have the power to save. It is not through our good deeds that we are saved. It took someone like Messiah, like Jesus, to do what he did, and that earned that. That was effective, okay? But at the same time, we have to come to grips with this 
idea that, okay, but if you don't do any deeds, if you, right, if you don't actually live out the faith instead of just thinking it, you have to do it, okay, you're going to miss out. And so, I mean, and reasonably, people hear that and they're like, well, then then my deeds do make it happen, right? <laughs> but they don't. Again, they're not effective. Well, then what are they? And and I think we've talked about it in the podcast before. I know I've talked about it with other people before. But it's that idea that they, they're like an identifying marker. It, it, without those deeds, y- you don't look like Christ. Without those deeds, you don't appear to be a team member, like God's team, if you know what I'm saying. And then to go back to some of those parables, maybe this is where we did talk about it. Parables where we talk about things like sheep versus goats, or wheat versus uh, tares, wheat versus weeds, things like that. How do you tell the difference? Well, if you are, in fact, doing the deeds, you are identifiable as a sheep, you cannot be mistaken for a goat. And if you don't do the deeds, you're not going to look anything like a sheep. And so you'll be easily identifiable as a goat instead. And same thing, wheat, tares, whatever. So that's like the the biggest, most important thing is this idea that... And, and I think this was actually much simpler for a Jew in the first century to grab hold of, because they're not trying to get rid of a lot of the bad teaching, etc., that we've had nowadays. They never had an idea that somehow their works were going to save them. That never even crossed their mind. They always depended on God's mercy, God doing something to make all of this happen. And that these, I mean, there's two things, like the the deeds represent obedience to the instructions. This is how you be human instead of animal, so to or whatever. But it also, for them, represented covenant. This is how we fulfill our part for all of the things that God is doing in and among us. So now I've said enough. I kind of, I need to check in. How are we doing with answering your question? <laughs> I I think that helped, uh, and it's a good reminder of things we've said previously, um, and my chemistry brain goes to, it's, those deeds are like a, a litmus test, like when you, when you have a, a pH indicator strip that you put into a solution of something, and it turns a certain color to tell you whether it's acidic or basic, basic that is just a, a visible representation of something that is invisible that we can't see with our naked eye. So it's like the deeds are the visible representation of the faith, the trust uh, that we have invisibly within our conscience, our heart, our motivations, our minds. They're inextricably linked, but yeah. it's not like one over the other. It's man, that's a, it's just a it's a Jewish tension, is what it is. Yeah, another way to say it is. You can say that you believe, but only when you truly believe do you act like you truly believe. You know, hmm. it's it's like the it's like the yeah. manifestation of your very belief. It is, yeah. Now here is a spiritual question for all of the chemists in the audience. Super genius. We know that if you're lukewarm, God's just going to spit you out of his mouth kind of thing, right? That whole revelation thing. So that would be like pH of neutral. And so we figure he likes either hot or cold. We're, we're assuming hot because that means, you know, you're like on fire for God, that kind of thing. That's at least the way I take it. So c- the question for all the chemists is, <laughs> so does that mean you are acidic or basic? Which is it? I'll leave that for another day, unless you think you know the answer, Samuel. Nope. (laughs) All right. We're going to let that one go, but we're going to keep going in Luke. All right. Anything else before we go, Samuel? Did we cover all your stuff? Yeah. Okay. 
So we're still in Luke 16. We're going to look at verses 14 through 17. Uh, and it's funny because he's, you know, changing the topic, changing the story, whatever. And yet there's, there's a, a thread that keeps running through. So let's keep going. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. I forgot before I read it. There's some real, these are brain twisters in here, Samuel. So let's see. (laughs) We are definitely trying to bring light to the world on this episode. This is a toughie. You got these Pharisees. And again, can I just say, it's some Pharisees. Not all Pharisees were lovers of money. In fact, many of them lived very austere lives. It seems that whoever these Pharisees were, they, they were hearing Jesus's words, but they weren't really hearing him. In fact, they found him to be ridiculous. They mocked him. They derided him. They jeered him for his teaching about a proper relationship with wealth and resources, which it's I, it's hard to even believe and understand. I mean, these are people who, they should have been so in tune with their Bibles, even if they were missing the point a lot of the time. How they could mock and jeer him over this is crazy to me. But nonetheless, they did. And these Pharisees, again, it was only some of them, but these were the ones, they justified themselves. Another way of saying that is they declared themselves to be righteous. And this is, of course, opposed to God declaring them to be righteous, which would have been way better. But God sees and knows the heart of all men. God sees clearly mankind, you know, kind of seems to see upside down compared to God. So these Pharisees' attitude toward and, and, and their use of wealth and riches, and, and you know, again, this is toward the poor, the downtrodden, the disenfranchised, which they thought was great, you know, the way they were seeing it, they, so much so that they were able to mock Jesus over it, their attitude was an abomination in God's eyes. And then Jesus makes this statement that, you know, many find confusing, and I think it's very, very understandable. We're going to try to help simplify it, whatever. There are two strong interpretations that we could talk about. There are certainly more than two interpretations, but, you know, whatever. We'll talk about these two. And this is the one where the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So, number one, I'm going to kind of uh, break this down in Paul language here. Here we go. God has been working with Israel across history. God, he gave Israel the law, the Torah, and this is like the kingdom, you know, being modeled to them. And, and God, he sent word through prophets, and that's kind of like the kingdom being foretold. And, and God even sent the ultimate prophet, that would be his son, Jesus, the Messiah. And, and this was all introduced through John. That's when the kingdom was announced. Obviously, Jesus, he is that king, and so the kingdom comes with him. This is all to establish the long-awaited kingdom. And here's, here's one interpretation. Everyone is being urged to take advantage of the invitation of this kingdom. So when it says everyone forces his way into it, the Greek could also be along the lines of urging instead of forcing. And so everyone is being urged to take advantage of it. Okay, so that's one interpretation. But, and this is important before we go on, that invitation 
requires repentance. It's a return to the law that was given, the Torah that was given. It is eternal. It is unchanging, That the Torah, that is, and we must follow its instruction. So that's one interpretation. The other one looks more like this. Same story. God's been working with Israel all across history. He gave him the law and the Torah. He sent the prophets, uh, his ultimate prophet in Jesus, introduced through John, all establishing the kingdom. And now here's the, the second interpretation. Everyone is trying to force their way into this kingdom by their own measures and standards. And that actually seems to be very much like what these Pharisees are doing. But this invitation to the kingdom, it's the same thing. It requires repentance. It's a return to the Torah. It's eternal. It's unchanging. We have to follow its instruction. And just as a side note, because I know a lot of people read this this way, there is nothing in this text that suggests an end of the law. That's it's not in view here in any way whatsoever. That's just, it's like a willful misreading. And it's actually countered by the text itself, because the text says at the end of it, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It, it simply does not become void. It's eternal, meaning it goes through to the end of this age. The point is about fulfillment, and fulfillment does not mean end. It just means fulfillment. That's it. It can be fulfilled over and over and over and over and over again. That would be a good thing. So anyway, that is my attempt at trying to help people understand how everyone gets forced into this kingdom or, you know, whatever that said in verse 16. What do you think, Samuel? We make any progress on that one? Yeah, I think so. Um, Did you say that you leaned more towards interpretation number one or number two? I did not say. Either way. Do you have an answer? Well, here's the thing. I actually think both of them make perfect sense. I mean, if you just think of the story, first century Israel, Jesus walking around, all of that, everyone is indeed being urged to take advantage of the invitation to this kingdom. And I think that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. The law and the prophets were until John. That was sort of like foretelling of the kingdom. John announces that kingdom coming. Jesus shows up as the king of this kingdom. And everyone is being urged into it. So, number one, I think that makes perfect sense. The other one, everyone is trying to force their way in by their own measures and standards. Well, that fits a lot with everything that we've been reading. Because people, it's like they want to be around Jesus. They want to see the signs and miracles. You know, they're like into it. But we seem to get this sense that people aren't really repenting. It seems to be a little more of an attraction to the spectacle than it is the actual thing that's going on before them. And so you can see that idea of people trying to get in by their own way, their own, not like they've got their own measure, their own standard in their head. I think that one is equally true. The only thing I would say is in this particular text, we are talking about these Pharisees who are ridiculing him. He's talking about the right way. They think that they have their own way. They think it's right. And so that would fit a little better with the second interpretation. But I don't know. How about you? Yeah, the way that you, or the way that the text reads, it lends itself very well to interpretation number two um, with your statement that everyone is trying to force their way in by their own measures and standards. And it makes me think of um, in the book of Judges in the Old Testament, you have this, some people call it a sin cycle. I like Marty Solomon's interpretation of it being a, a redemption cycle of the people of Israel right. going astray. Um, they they experience some type of a captivity or exile, and then they cry out to God, and God sends them some type of redeemer and a, a judge to to come and save them and and bring them back into um, his instruction. Um, But at the end of that book, it kind of ends on a poor note, but the verse 
at the end of the book in chapter 21 fits so well with this second interpretation. So Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Uh, that, that that sounds just like what that you're bringing does. to the table here. That is so good. See? That's good. All right. Well, if we had any smarts, we'd end right there. But it's us, so let's keep yep. going. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I was thinking we could probably fit in just one more verse anyway, because it's so odd. Samuel, listen, all of these things that we've been talking about, just kind of get those in your head and listen to what he says in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Squirrel. <laughs> exactly. It's like, where did that come from? And you got to wonder, okay, was Jesus talking? And he literally said that because I'm just going to, you know, like spoiler alert, he goes back to talking about rich people and stuff like that in the very next verse. Was Jesus the one who was like, hey, I'm going to talk about something different? Or did Luke slip it in here? Or let's, here's the thing. Let's just let's start talking about it and see what we got. Uh, this is obviously I've already been talking about. It's an odd sentence to try to sandwich within a conversation or a, a speech or whatever about wealth and resources. And I think it should at least raise the question: Could it be that this little statement here about adultery could it be as much about you know God versus money as it is about husbands and wives? I don't know. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second because, uh, again, why is it here? But let's first, let's just go ahead and take the statement at face value. We see Jesus offering a, a slightly different take on adultery than was common in his day. So, you know, it's a good statement to, to capture from Jesus. Adultery, I, I, I feel like we've said this out loud in the podcast before, adultery was very specific. It was, it was that a man was going to have relations with a married woman that was not his wife. Okay, Jesus, he's, he's changing it. He's actually taking it a little further. He's raising the bar, you might say. Now, you also might say, no, he's not. He's just helping you see what God really meant all along. But nonetheless, we get the idea. Jesus, it seems like he's raising the bar. He seems to be, and I think, again, going back to Genesis 2.24, uh, Samuel, why don't you read that one out loud for us, just so we remember it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Yeah. So it, what we see, if we could sort of expound on this a little bit, Jesus understands God's intention to be that, okay, number one, sex is for marriage. Uh, number two, men and women should be monogamous in marriage. Number three, that marriage should be lifelong. Okay? Now, today, uh, on one hand, that perspective, uh, it's very commonly understood. I mean, people, they know about it. They get that point of view. But it's really not agreed to by all right? Not, not many people, uh, there just aren't that many people left that live by that. So uh, in Jesus's day, though, this was a little bit of a radical teaching. And uh, just just to remember, we've talked about uh, Hillel and Shammai. Remember mm -hmm. them, Samuel? Yep. And uh, Hillel was, would we call him liberal or conservative? He would be liberal. Yeah. And, and Shammai was more conservative. Jesus and, and this has nothing to do with modern-day politics or the definitions of those words, so get that out of your head. Hillel, Jesus seemed to agree with Hillel most of the time, like an overwhelming substantial majority of the time. But Hillel's teaching on this it was very popular, but it allowed divorce for just about anything. 
And, and this statement seems to assume, this one here in verse 18, it seems to assume an invalid reason for divorce. And Jesus doesn't agree with Hillel at all. Okay, this is good teaching about marriage and relationships, and, you know, we should at least acknowledge that much, and, and we should, I think, uh, you know, this is something we can keep a good tight grip on. This is good stuff. But now, on the other hand, if we were to take this statement, because it appears right in the middle of all this other stuff, if we take it a little more, I don't know, metaphorically, something like that, we might understand humans as being married, or or maybe we would use a word like betrothed or something like that, but they would be married to true wealth or to God, that would be the better way to see it, but the other woman would be the wealth of this world. And so we then would be considered adulterers when we seek the wealth of this world as opposed to merely using the wealth of this world to carry out God's will. So, I mean, did Jesus really say it as a metaphor? Don't know. Did Luke insert it here because he thought it had a cool meaning? I don't know. Uh, did it get here? Did it get inserted by accident? You know, I mean, these documents, they don't all exist in a, as a single copy. You know, people tried to make copies. and Did it somehow just get inserted in this place? I don't know. It's a cool interpretation, this, this idea of, you know, turning it around and saying, well, no, it's actually about us and whether we're married to God and true wealth or whether we're married to this world and, you know, this temporary fake wealth, whatever. It's cool, but I think we should hold on to that a little more loosely because, you know, maybe true, maybe not. Hmm. It's interesting nonetheless. Yeah. That's it. No other comments? Not for me, no. All right. Well, then, you know, I people don't know this, but we had a major disaster while recording this episode, and so now we have absolutely no idea how long it really is. <laughs> so I think that we should cut it off, try to be on the safe side. <laughs> Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about us and the podcast at www.okidokimost.com. Please feel free to send us any comments or questions you may have to our email address, okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.